All right, my friends, thanks for tuning into the podcast, where, as always, we'll discuss the professional literature and the evidence-based protocol as they relate to the effective treatment of clinically significant anxiety symptoms. I'm Chris Lines, licensed psychotherapist and OCD spectrum disorders treatment specialist, and this, well, this is OCD Straight Talk. Dr. David Barlow, uh, professor of psychology and psychiatry emeritus at Boston University, uh, author of more than six, uh, 650 peer-reviewed articles, book chapters, and more than 90 books and clinical manuals, a recipient of numerous professional and academic awards, including the APA uh, Distinguished Scientific Award for the Application of Psychology, uh, the Aaron T. Beck Award, and the American Psychological Foundation's 2018 uh, gold medal award for life achievement in the practice of psychology, uh, past president of the Division of Clinical Psychology of the American Psychological Association, mm. and past president of the Association of Behavioral and Cognitive Therapies, uh, and one of the most cited or referenced psychologists in the world. Dr. Barlow, it's a great privilege, sir, to have you on the podcast. Thank you for having me, Chris. Yes, sir. So uh, one of the reasons I uh, began podcasting to begin with on the general topic of, of anxiety disorders and, and OCD uh, was that I discovered many of the patients that uh, were presenting for treatment had presented for treatment previously, uh, in, in some cases repeatedly. And, and I discovered that uh, some of the therapists that were providing services for them uh, were engaging an eclectic form of talk therapy uh, in which they were incorporating uh, components of psychodynamic theory, uh, Rogerian sort of empathic listening uh, into a loose application of cognitive behavior therapy, but no less uh, an approach for which there wasn't a, a significant amount of uh, supporting data. In fact, what I found was that uh, there was a, a lot of different modalities that were being used, or at least a, a variety of some modalities that were being used uh, across uh, the general population of psychotherapy for the treatment of anxiety. Some of these were evidence-based interventions, and obviously some of them were not, or at least less so. Um, and, uh, and this is, again, why I, I started the podcast. Uh, so if I'm not mistaken, at least to some degree, this parallels uh, some of the backstory with regard to why you developed uh, the unified protocol for transdiagnostic trans treatment of emotional disorders. Uh, before we talk specifically, or at least more specifically about uh, the unified protocol or, or what's called UP, um, I wonder if you could talk uh, about why you developed it uh, and how it's different from cognitive behavior therapy uh, and the exposure therapies for OCD and the anxiety disorders? Okay, those are very good questions, Chris, and I'm pleased to talk about that. Um, <clears throat> I've had, I just want to say to your audience, you know, that I've had the privilege um, of a very long career, uh, as you can tell, uh, you see me. Um, so, for over 50 years, I've been doing this, and I've had an interesting perspective on our conceptions of the nature of anxiety, energy disorders, related disorders, anxiety, depression, related disorders, and also the way we've approached it 
over that period of time, which is just about a lifetime. Uh, and needless to say, things have changed uh, very radically uh, in that era. Um, <clears throat> back in the 1960s, when I was in training, there were no sort of proven treatments that would be, uh, one could reliably call upon to treat people with suffering from uh, anxiety and its disorders or severe depression. In fact, and forgive Sorry. me, in fact, one of the very first studies uh, on the successful treatment of OCD was in the mid-60s with Victor Meyer and the modification of ex expectations with uh, obsessional rituals, I believe he called it. That's uh, exactly right. I had the pleasure of uh, actually working a little bit with Victor Meyer, uh, both in, the, in London, and he came to visit us in, in our setting. Uh, wow. And he was you know, a real iconoclast, a real, like many uh, people who are creative and original in their fields, uh, you know, he, he wasn't afraid to uh, be doing something different, let's put it that way, because he went very much against the grain of what was accepted treatment in those days, mm -hmm. which was largely long-term, uh, often psychoanalytic psychotherapy, where you, you know, the character caricature of it is that you'd lie in the couch and anywhere from, oh, two or three to five times a week for three to f two, three, four years. Yeah, years of time. And, you know, that was the Freudian approach and it was considered, uh, you know, the gold standard of intervention. There are a few people do that nowadays, and, uh, maybe in a few big cities, but uh, um, it's still the case that, um, you know, a lot of the therapy going on in the country and North America and the world for that matter is what we would call supportive psychotherapy. And there's nothing wrong with supportive psychotherapy. I mean, it's a, it's a, a very human uh, kind of, uh, you know, uh, method of being a good listener and being empathic, you know, with uh, individuals. But you know what was discovered, um, even as far back as the '70s, with a uh, sophisticated psychotherapist uh, by the name of Hans Strupp, is that you didn't need a lot of training to do that. You know that kind of approach um, could be provided by a really good friend. Yeah, um, and uh, there had to be a friend who was a good listener. Yeah. you know, and was empathic. And that was fine for dealing with life's problems that we all encounter. Uh, these things that come down the road and, you know, we all have to deal with them and hopefully we get through them and we move on and the next sort of crisis comes. But the, uh, because, you know, I'll just say one more thing before I go on with that. You know, anxiety is really our friend. Anxiety is something we would not want to be without. Uh, anxiety and fear are protective emotions in moderation and in a kind of normal sort of sense. So you're distinguishing uh, between clinically significant and clinically insignificant uh, anxieties. Exactly. So anxiety, as most of us experience it, it helps us plan for the future, helps us be alert, 
helps us get our work done, uh, perform well when, uh, you know, during uh, interviews or, or social occasions. So, and fear, of course, which is a somewhat different emotion, is very protective because uh, we are hardwired to experience fear, which allows us to immediately escape from some uh, uh, imminent danger or threat. Like a, you're crossing the street and you see a car careening down at you and you jump out of the way. You don't have to think about that. You know, that's your visual system communicating directly to your emotional brain, bypassing the cortex, bypassing the, right? and because we can uh, reply instantaneously, uh, we'll survive, you know, we'll survive. There are some people who experience neither anxiety nor fear. And another name we have for them is psychopaths. And they often die young, which is a characteristic of these people. So I just want to say, you know, anxiety in its normal uh, kind of experience or manifestation is a good thing. But we know, and we've known for forever, that when it becomes extreme, when anxiety leads to the kind of symptoms and behaviors that interfere with life's function, interfere with our functioning in a major kind of way, then we have what's called a disorder or mm -hmm. a diagnosis. Yeah. And that's the kind of thing that supportive psychotherapy was not, is not really good at helping. Uh, and that's where uh, the treatments we uh, develop <clears throat> to deal with these disorders, whether they are psychological treatments, as we'll talk about mostly here, or drug treatments, which can also be helpful to some people in some cases, uh, that's when they become important. Excellent, excellent. So talk about, if you could, uh, we're, 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 we're discussing uh, clinically significant symptomatology and, and therefore the need for psychological intervention. And there are a number of evidence-based practices, maybe a small number, that are proven to be effective for symptom reduction with regard to OCD or the anxiety disorders, uh, et cetera. Um, and one of these is the unified protocol. Um, I wonder if you could talk about why you developed it? What, what's, what set you in a place where, speaking, I mean, speaking of, uh, we just talked about him, uh, Victor Meyer, and, and, and Carl Rogers was in the same boat where he kind of came along and developed something that was new, that wasn't really being done at the time. Uh, and, and to some real extent, I would say, well, David Barlow is, is in that camp where he's doing something that's different to some extent um, than what other uh, practitioners or researchers or clinicians are doing and is taking the field forward. The question becomes, the, the question becomes what caused you or put you in a place where you thought I need to develop something else, something in addition to what we've got? Sure, yeah, and that's a very good question. And uh, I could speak for an hour on it, but I'll try to really give it the, uh, I'll try to provide the, the, brief, the brief little history. Yes, sir. Um, so again, we have already talked about the fact that in the 60s, um, we did not have really uh, effect uh, treatments that were had any proof of their uh, effectiveness for treating more severe kinds of uh, psychological disorders. Uh, we had supportive psychotherapy, we had long-term psychotherapy. Um, but um, what happened was 
we began to get a lot better at identifying different kind of uh, presentations or manifestations that we call disorders. And that led to uh, the publication in 1980 of the DSM-3 <clears throat> and also the, the corresponding uh, ICD, which was the, the, the rest of the world, the, the World Health Organization system for classifying mental disorders. And they, 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 they were kind of you know, developed in tandem and then they were fairly similar. But it identified specific disorders, identified phobias, identified generalized anxiety disorder, identified panic disorder, OCD. Uh, prior to that, we sort of recognized these things were somewhat different, but um, we had no uh, good way of differentiating them. That changed in 1980 with those classification systems. The next step then was that we began looking at these disorders more carefully and developing effective treatments for them. Now, for disorders like OCD, we already had the beginnings of that. Right. With pioneers like Victor Meyer, Isaac Marx, uh, Jack Rockman, uh, uh, many of them in, uh, in uh, England. Um, <clears throat> And, but that was only really in the late 1960s, early 70s, you know, that that, that began to happen. We began to, to coalesce that. And that continued. We began to develop those treatments, which we can talk more about in a minute. So, and then we developed our own treatment for panic disorder. We developed some different treatments for generalized anxiety disorder and, uh, and so on, hypochondriasis. Um, so, now we're at the point where we have some good treatments for these different disorders, but to bring us ahead, we all began noticing that, as you've already observed, that uh, and, and to some degree, that when people come in seeking treatment for say OCD, <clears throat> we'll stick with that one for a minute. Most of the time they don't come in just with OCD. They also meet criteria or maybe panic disorder, maybe generalized anxiety disorder, and maybe some depression. Um, yeah, I think and, I know where you're going with this. And that maybe the operative phrase is meet criteria for. Yeah. So then the question is, then the question we were faced with in those days was, well, what do you treat first? Mm -hmm. Well, the decision most of us came to is, well, we'll treat the one that's the most troublesome to the patient, the most severe. Then the question is, well, what happens to the others if you're successful in treating the first one? Mm -hmm. Well, in some cases, they're still there. In other cases, they seem to remit, as we say, you know, get better uh, when you treat the major problem. And it was, a, it was all over the place. So we began to realize to, again, make a long story short, that we needed to enlarge our scope. We needed to look at First of all, what do these disorders have in common? Mm -hmm. They seem very different. OCD seems very different than, for example, a panic disorder or, uh, or just being depressed. I mean, you know, they obviously look very different. They feel very different. But what do they have in common? And what we began experimenting with way back in the late 80s and early 90s is Given that there are some commonalities we had begun to identify among these disorders, 
would there be some kind of common treatment principles that we could demonstrate would be effective for these, these, these principles we were addressing? And that was the beginning of what we called a transdiagnostic treatment, because it was a set of principles that addressed underlying factors that seem common to all disorders where you know, severe emotional dysregulation was, was a part. Wow, fa fascinating. So, so common treatment principles. And I think that one of the questions, and, and you're speaking to this, and I don't mean to <clears throat> ask a question that you've sort of already answered, and I, I'll beg your pardon if so, but I think that one of the questions that sort of gets raised here is, um, so given that there is some symptomatological overlap between, for example, panic disorder and OCD, while admittedly, they do seem to be objectively distinct to some degree um, uh, and to some genuine degree, uh, but there is that overlap. And given the fact also that um, exposure therapy is effective for, um, and, and we're, you know, we're speaking about um, uh, I suppose different different kinds of exposure therapy with panic disorder where we're really wanting to engage exposure um, in relationship to physiological sensations and, and et cetera. And with OCD, there's exposure, in vivo exposure and, and imaginal, et cetera. But in any case, you follow exposure therapy is effective for reduction in symptoms in both of these conditions. The question that it, particularly in light of a unified protocol becomes to what extent uh, are we to uh, identify and conceptualize an objective and, a, and an abiding difference uh, between many of the common mental health diagnoses when a number of them can be treated, can be treated, at least in some cases, I'm hearing you say, with yeah. a single intervention? Well, <clears throat> you know, we have evidence that, that actually most of them can be treated, but to to get a feel for why that is, you know, it's helpful to take an example, I think. Yeah. You know, early on, I used to take the simplest example I could think of, somebody with a phobia. Let's say you have a phobia of dogs. Fairly common, you know, some people really, we all know people, maybe sometimes in a family that you really wouldn't bring a dog near them, that they, they just uh, have an irrational fear of even a, you know, a harmless dog, even if they know it's harmless. So what happens? They see a dog, they get extremely anxious, and because of that, they avoid the dog, okay? And how do you treat somebody with a dog phobia? Well, we now know that your basic exposure principles, you would start with a very non-threatening small dog, you know, and maybe bring that dog uh, into the room, uh, you know, holding it and, and gradually let the dog uh, get closer and closer to the patient and uh, all the while demonstrating, you know, that uh, the dog is, the, the, the patient experiencing the dog is fairly harmless. And uh, before you know it, you know, you're bigger dogs and maybe you're outdoors and, and if everything works well, the patient can be very comfortable around dogs, or at least not fearful. So that's the standard kind of exposure-based uh, treatment, as we all know. Right. Common sense. You know, I mean, everybody from Freud through the behavior said, 
You know, you can't overcome a fear unless you confront your fear. But we've just learned how to confront it in the most kind of, uh, you know, uh, effective and non-threatening way. Well, now let's extend that. Let's say you have OCD. Now, how is that like a phobia? Well, we used to point out that, well, <clears throat> for the dog, for you know, a dog would, that you have an irrational fear of, substitute a really scary thought. Okay, so let's say, let's take a thought that's very common. We see it all the time in our clinic, particularly among young women and young mothers uh, uh, specifically. Mm -hmm. And that is that somehow they're going to lose control and harm their children. Some of these thoughts are very bizarre. For example, you know, they'll often say they're going to take a kitchen knife. They'll see a knife and they'll take that kitchen knife and stab their two-year-old. Yeah, the fear that they're gonna do that. Yeah, uh, that's the thought. That's the image they have, as, as you know, you treat people, you know, on, you know, these poor people all the time. It's, and um, these are horrific thoughts. So what happens? You actually become horrified and fearful of having that thought again, because of all its uh, terrible significance and also the, the feeling that you might actually do it. Um, and um, you avoid it. You try to do everything you can possible to avoid that, we'll call it phobic stimulus for a minute, which now is the, the thought. The problem with the thought, of course, is that unlike a dog, you can't just leave the room and get out of the house and you know get away from it or run into the house if the dog's outside. So you have to come up with some, some magical ways to reduce that fear, to avoid or escape that fear. And that's where the rituals come in. They serve the purpose of avoiding or escaping uh, the high anxiety and fear associated with that thought. You can do the same thing with a panic attack. Now, the thing to remember is that uh, for that horrific thought about stabbing your, your two-year-old, let's say, I mean, it's, it's so, that is so common, and I'm sure you do the same thing, Chris, that all of the patients coming into our clinic uh, who, are young, who are young mothers, we, um, we, part of the intake is to ask them if they have any thoughts like that mm -hmm. so that we can begin to normalize it, begin to say, look, you know, those are thoughts a lot of people have. When they're under stress or whatever, doesn't mean you're going to do it. You know, so we begin to normalize it. In fact, so so much so that, and uh, correct me if I'm mistaken, it's th those thoughts are so common among young mothers that even individuals that aren't necessarily a, a meeting diagnostic criteria for OCD, for example, sometimes experience those thoughts too. <clears throat> oh, all the time. Mm -hmm. um, very common. So again, what happens is that there are a lot, well, to carry on with the analogy then. So you have something that's very frightening, a dog or a scary thought, even though rationally you may know you're not going to do it. Of course, your, your emotional brain is telling you, but you might do it. You know, this dog, even though the dog's barely alive, could jump up and bite you, you know, or that thought 
you know, that you're going to stab your child. You know, you're the last person that would hurt your child. But oh, you, how do you know that? That might be, you know, so you're emotional. You're, there's a continual battle going on between your emotional brain and your rational brain. And that's what makes an anxiety disorder. That's the definition of an anxiety disorder, uh, where the emotional brain is winning, winning out too much. And uh, I suppose that part of, forgive me for, for jumping in, no. I suppose that part of what makes that those kinds of thoughts so anxiety producing is the possibility that, well, that dog could bite me. It's maybe very small and barely alive, but it's not impossible that that thought could come to fruition right here. Right. And that's your emotional brain talking. Because if you brought 20 people into the room and they start with a little harmless dog, you know, that all could all that all he could do to open his eyes, you know, let alone run at you and uh, be angry. Right, right, uh, right. 19 people would say, oh, that's, that's uh, you know, that dog is a uh, uh, the calmest thing you'd ever want to see. I'd like to take that dog home. He's really cute. One person might have that thought, though, but you never know. Yeah, they might jump up and fang showing and come after you. And so they, that's, they, that would be the one that would have a phobia. Same thing with thoughts. Um, so the thought of killing your children, as you just pointed out, Chris, killing, hurting, it's doing something hor horrific to your children. Most young mothers under stress, and I'm talking about 60, 70, even 80%, mm -hmm. will have some thoughts like that. They're busy, they're running around the house, their one-year-old and their three-year-old is under their feet. They're, they're in a hurry to, let's say, get dinner ready or make a business appointment or, or something. And most people under stress will have what we call these ego dystonic thoughts. That's another word for saying nonsensical, bizarre thoughts. Uh, but 90% of the people, again, let's take the 19 out of 20, the example I just used for the dog phobia, 19 out of 20, for 19 out of 20 of those young mothers, the thoughts will go in one ear and out the other, as we say. In other words, they might say, oh my God, that was a strange thought, but you know, it just must be the, uh, that I'm in such a rush, you know, some strange things are occurring. So you're still dystonic. Don't forget about it. Yeah, they're still dystonic for these people, but they're able to let them go, whereas- Yeah, this, they let yeah. it go. They go in one ear and out the other. They say, that's really strange, you know? Well, they might say, oh, God, you're saying, you know, there must be that Chinese food I had last night that made me, uh, you know, have, have the, you know, really react very strangely. Obviously, I would never do that. And they, they don't go through that kind of thought process. It just goes in one ear and out the other. They know it's, they know it's bizarre. But that one person out of 20 would say, oh, my God, you know, it, that was the worst thought I've ever had in my life. It's a sin if you're, you know, in a religious framework. It's a terrible uh, offense against uh, God and humanity. And oh, I could never tell anybody. It's it's humiliating. And I guess it means that there's a chance I could do it. It's the same thing with if you have a height phobia. You know, if you get near, and many people have height phobias. If you get near a high place, the thoughts often in your head, particularly if you're phobic. You could jump off this high place. You know, you could uh, purposely take a long, uh, you know, a step and 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 jump off, and you'd be dead. Um, whereas other people don't have the thought. So, the fact that these things occur, and this is true for panic attacks, 
19 out of the 20 people who have panic attacks, what we call non-clinical panic attacks. It's just a response to stress, mm -hmm. very normal response. 19 out of 20 people might have under stress, bizarre thoughts going through their heads. Uh, other people have, um, you know, some people have a lot of difficulty getting to sleep at night or, or wake up frequently during the night. Uh, 19 out of 20 people can roll over and go back to sleep. One out of 20 will say, oh my God, I'm not sleeping. If I don't get to sleep in the next five minutes, my whole day will be ruined tomorrow. Pretty soon they're up all night worrying about it. Right. Now, so now, again, talk, talk about... Talk about, if you could, that the clinical population within uh, those experiencing panic attacks, for example, those meeting criteria for panic disorder, uh, the, the OCDers and, and so on, the, the individuals experiencing clinically significant anxiety, talk about where uh, behavioral responses come in. So whether we're talking about OCD and, and rituals or compulsions or safety behaviors with regard to uh, you know, trauma responses, whatever language we're using, uh, talk about how uh, how the behavioral responses, and again, maybe we'll use the term ritualistic responses, yeah. tend to exacerbate or at least perpetuate uh, those intrusive thoughts and corresponding anxiety, if you could. And this is exactly what happens. In all the cases we're talking about, that one out of 20 people who get really anxious and upset about these they share what we call a neurotic temperament. They have a trait of neuroticism. And that consists of people who get, tend to be more emotional, but have a lot of negative affect when they experience uh, the vicissitudes of life, you know, such as these bizarre thoughts or uh, an occasional panic attack or difficulty sleeping or whatever. And so when something like this occurs to them, what do they do? They do everything in their power to suppress or avoid that experience again. Whereas the person without the trait of neuroticism just kind of lets it go, you know, and goes on to the next thing and says, well, that's bizarre, but you know, it's not me. You right. know, I'm not really like that. So they go on to the next thing. So the key to developing an emotional disorder is this tendency to react very badly to the experience of, let's say, stress and anxiety, and to do everything in your power to suppress or avoid it. Now, we know from decades of research in psychology that whenever you attempt to suppress or avoid a very emotionally laden or salient thought or uh, urge or, or uh, action, it doesn't work. It tends to explode in your head to the point where this cycle increasingly gets more and more severe. And it's important to, to highlight here for individuals who are listening in and hearing the word avoidance, you're using the word very broadly, I believe, to include a variety of ritualistic responses that wouldn't necessarily look to them like avoidance, but they would, they would be behaviors that they're exhibiting for the purpose of trying to keep a, a feared outcome from happening. Again, using the term avoidance very, very broadly. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct. And it's a very important point. It is anything whose function, as we say, 
whether it's a thought and behavior or another kind of feeling whose function is to try to suppress the strong negative emotions of anxiety and uh, let's say depression. So it could be, you know, in the case of a dog phobic, it's often behavior. You run away from the dog or you go in another room. Uh, for someone with OCD, it tends to be more, it can be a behavioral ritual. You wash your hands all the time. If it's contamination, you're, you're phobic of. Or you say reassuring prayers, you know. Uh, so it could be a cognitive way of avoiding it. For somebody with generalized anxiety disorder, where their worries could be more realistic. They're not like uh, obsessive, you know, uh, ego dystonic obsessive thoughts. It is worrying all the time about, uh, will the kids, are the kids all right at school? Will they get home all right? You know, as a transfer. They continually seek reassurance. They might call their kids and say, are you okay? And maybe they do it four or five times a day. It drives the kid nuts. You know, the kid's nuts. Same thing with maybe their partner. Uh, they drive them nuts. And, but that act of seeking reassurance lessens the anxiety. But paradoxically, it makes it worse in the long run. That's, and that's an essential point. Uh, it, there's a sense in the which we could say that over and over again for the remainder of the recording. It's so essential. It's so important for people to hear and to really understand that when they're engaging these behaviors, there's a paradoxical result in which actually the anxiety uh, increases in severity um, and, and, uh, and perpetuates in terms of time and experience. If you would try to suppress or avoid, it could be a cognitive way of trying to suppress or avoid, a behavioral way. It could be what we call a safety signal, where you can't go anywhere without, let's say, a lot of our patients will carry an empty bottle of pills. Why? Well, somehow in their emotional brain, there's less chance they'll have a panic attack if they have that bottle of pills with them, even though there's no pills in it. Now they know that's crazy. I mean, they know it's irrational uh, because all people with emotional disorders know the difference between what's rational and irrational. It's just that in the situation, in the real event, their emotions take over and win the day. So it could be any number of these behaviors. My favorite example, one of my favorite examples, we, we have a collection of all these you know, safety kinds of uh, gadgets and signals that, that people carry with them or things they do. So we had a woman once who uh, suffered from uh, panic uh, attacks and agoraphobia and therefore could not could barely go out of her house, but she could go to do just the local errands. But if she drove to the store to pick the kids up at school, she had to have the dog in the back seat. So we say, well, if you have a panic attack while you're driving, what's the dog gonna do? You know, is he gonna jump in the front seat and take over the wheel? Because her, her fear was that she'd lose control of the car and crash it. Right. And of course, it can become, you know, you, you, can, you, can, you can use humor in sessions, as, as a lot of therapists do, because the, the patient fully realized, you know, there was nothing whatsoever that dog was going to do to uh, make her, you know, safer. And yet she had the feeling that she was better off with the dog. And so in this you know, case, a lot of, you know, there's a lot of rescue dogs that, right. that, you know, most people think that's a good thing. It's not always a good thing. 
it can be a bad thing. It can be a bad thing. Because then you become dependent on it. And if you don't have it, then you're just, then your problem gets worse. Yeah. Okay. So um, I don't want to presume upon your time. So I want to begin to sort of begin to wrap things up here. I've sure. got to ask you a question about etiology. Etiology being uh, simply why? Why did I get this? Why do I have the symptoms? Uh, so I've got to ask an etiological question. I came across triple vulnerability. Um, right. And I've had your book uh, for five years or so, the fifth edition of the clinical handbook, not the sixth. I just saw there's a sixth edition out. Shame on me that I don't have it yet. In any case, I saw the triple vulnerability. And um, so I'm really familiar with the leader, with the, the research that says heritability, right? Um, and to my mind, um, and I'm, you know, uh, speaking of vulnerability here, I'm revealing my ignorance. To my mind, the, the research that says, that points to a psychological, uh, for example, a learning kind of vulnerability, to my mind, is archaic. But the triple vulnerability shows that's not true. Uh, so I wonder if you could speak, uh, what is the triple vulnerability for those of us who maybe are just learning? Uh, sure. And uh, yeah, if you, I'll just leave it there. If you could talk about yeah. that. Yeah, and I'll try to make it simple. Obviously, it's a very complicated uh, topic that involves uh, genetics, neurobiological, uh, uh, you know, uh, of connections in the brain and, and uh, a lot of developmental uh, issues. But to, to make it simple, you know, we, we feel there are three aspects to it. That's why we call it triple vulnerability. First of all, <clears throat> we inherit a tendency to a temperament of neuroticism. We do not inherit OCD specifically or panic disorder specifically um, or a phobia specifically. Well, there's some qualifications for that. But let me say generally, that's the case. Uh, we do inherit a tendency to what we experience as being labile emotionally, to experience a lot of stress and negative affect. And again, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, anxiety is the, it's been called the shadow of intelligence. And neuroticism too, it helps us plan for the future. But in excess, like anything in excess, it can be bad. So that's what we inherit, a general tendency to be emotional, to be uh, more emotional and to experience some uh, negative effect. <clears throat> that's one biological vulnerability. So, so we don't inherit specific disorder, general tendency. Number two, we learn early on, this is a general psychological vulnerability. Very important that we learn early on that we have what's called in the psychological world, some agency, that we have some sense that events are reasonably in our control, that we can cope with what comes down the pike, you know, uh, if, if needs be. It's called a sense of control. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, all healthy people have this. Mm -hmm. And it usually is a result of a healthy upbringing. You know, we learn that, well, you run into things, you fall down, but you can pick yourself up and with the help of your parents in the background, you know, and, and letting you go out and experience the world. You know, you can learn that some mastery, a sense of control over life's events and that you can cope with what happens. Just as an aside, that's one of the difficulties these days with the kind of overprotective helicopter parents. Mm -hmm. 
you know, who never let their kids experience failure, never let them have a bad experience, screen all their friends, all their teachers, uh, you know, ad nauseum. Uh, to the extent that they're successful in protecting their kids from never experiencing adversity, they're, they're contributing to the possibility that they'll develop anxiety later on. So it's good, you know, to let kids grow well, they experience the world. They, they, they be, later on in life, they become their parents and they try to keep all these uh, dangers away but from themselves. Not only from their kids, but from themselves. Yeah. So, they, so that's number two. You develop a sense of control. And if you have that, the neuroticism is not going to make any difference because you know you can deal with issues that come down the pike. So the biological, but if you have the biological genetic vulnerability and the psychological vulnerability where you feel like things are continually out of control and you can't cope with them, then you have what we call the trait of neuroticism. Then the third thing might happen. All these things have to line up. You might have uh, during a particularly stressful time and you're during, as an adolescent, a panic attack where your heart starts beating through, you know, through your chest and you start perspiring and you get dizzy, you know, and you feel like, and if you don't know what's happening, most people don't, and you have the first two vulnerabilities, your mind jumps to the possibility that you're dying or you're going absolutely crazy and you're gonna be taken away in a straitjacket and put in a mental hospital. But if you have that sense of control and a, a sense that you can cope with uh, what happens, well, you're able to put that aside and kind of ignore that thought, even though uh, you know, you're vulnerable to it. But if you, again, if you uh, have the vulnerabilities and you have that panic attack, then all your anxiety, all your negative affect will be focused on suppressing having the next panic attack. So that's the third vulnerability is where you learn where your anxiety gets focused if you are inclined to be uh, you know, really emotional and anxiety. Could be on a panic attack, could be on a ego dystonic thought that most people experience, but you experience it you know, as much more devastating than somebody else. Could be on uh, insomniac kinds of uh, episodes. Uh, could be uh, on almost anything, you know, could be on the fact that uh, you, you learn early on that any kind of physical symptoms might mean that uh, you could be sick and maybe actually you have serious illness and you might be dying. Uh, whereas most people, you know, tolerate occasional unexplained physical symptoms, but if they can't, they become what we call illness, anxiety disorder, hypochondriacal. So, that's the third vulnerability. So biology, that's a genetic disposition to be emotional, a sense of control, which typically develops early on. If you have a really traumatic childhood, uh, you don't get that sense of control, you know, or other disruptive things happen, or you're not given the chance, you know, to develop it by overprotective parents. And third, you have some experiences that if you are still, you know, if you are anxious, that focus your anxiety and, and depression on a specific kind of activity, even though it might be, uh, you know, a relatively normal thing to experience. That's the triple vulnerability. Triple vulnerability. And I think it's really important for, for individuals to 
to, to have access to, to that awareness and, and to be able to take it in. But I think that part of the punchline that needs to come across as, as we're talking about triple vulnerability is that treatments are effective and that just because we're triply vulnerable to the onset of clinically significant anxiety presentations doesn't mean that uh, psychotherapy evidence-based protocols are ineffective for us. Right. Yeah. So what we've discovered is that um, particularly when with our transdiagnostic protocol, what we do is we attack the avoidance behavior and the escape behavior, whether it's cognitive or behavioral or whatever, we or safety signals. We pull that away. We work with the patient to diminish that or eliminate that and help them to face the difficult uh, situations or feared objects. And that's true across all the disorders. And uh, we, we really uh, you know, teach them to cope with these things in very, very kind of different ways than simply escape uh, and avoidance, whether it's depression or any of the anxiety disorders or any of the dissociative disorders or trauma disorders or even eating disorders. These same principles apply strip away the avoidance, cognitive, behavioral, whatever, experience and accept the uh, feared and fearful and difficult situation. Now, of course, it's more complex than that when you put it into practice, but those are the principles. Yeah, and I, I think that is, um, I, I, to be honest with you, sir, I really don't have the words. Uh, it is, it's a, it's a miracle. Uh, what you have done, uh, the, what what uh, you and your team have have discovered. Uh, I, I was uh, talking to um, Dr. John Abramowitz uh, last week or, or recently in any case, and I was talking to him about how uh, in, you know, I've done a lot of exposure therapy through the years, and it never ceases to be, to my mind, magical, right, to watch uh, symptoms begin to unravel and fall apart for people to get their lives back, uh, and so on. You know what I'm talking about. Uh, it's, sure. it's never, it's always, a joy to watch uh, and a privilege to see. But what you're talking about is you're, you're talking about a, a series of evidence-based protocols in relationship to, again, a series of diagnoses. And there's this amalgamation, it's to put it in my own language, that you're describing in which these, these common therapeutic threads are used across diagnostic lines for yep. symptom reduction. Uh, and effectively, it's a validated or proven intervention and it is uh, i mean it's it's amazing it's 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 amazing well you know we're all we're all making progress uh you know certainly and we all know that we're not perfect we can't help every single person but we clearly the evidence shows can help the majority of people and many of them will have uh you know be able to basically be rid of their uh, symptoms for um, you know a very long time, maybe forever. And um, if they recur, we have tools to go back in, give them booster shots, to use some current terminology. And we found that the booster shots are very helpful as well, just you know to refresh on some of the uh, techniques. So we we do, and and that these techniques are far better than some of the alternatives. So we made progress in that regard. We still have progress to make. Uh, and we're all still plugging away, trying to come up with more and more successful treatments.
Yeah, I think that the 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 very the final thing I'll say, I the the question or the dilemma that emerges here is again to go back to the beginning of our conversation and kind of using cathartic interventions or or helpful supportive psychotherapy, I think was the term that you used. Uh, you know, it's a question of why are some individuals still using what really are archaic interventions, that is to say, outdated stuff that um, maybe to, to some degree can be helpful in building a relationship and so on within the therapeutic process. But again, if that's our primary tool, well, there's there's interventions that we have available in modern time that are really effective. And so the question sort of becomes, well, why are folks, some folks still using the old stuff, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, again, our our behavioral health care delivery system is very fragmented, you know, and it's uh, um, our training systems are very much a cottage industry, you know, they're different from place to place. Yeah. We have a number of mental health uh, professions trying to provide services. We don't have nearly enough mental health professionals and many of them uh you know have we, we don't have mechanisms in place to necessarily uh get the best procedures out there and that's that's true by the way whether it be behavioral health or uh, physical health yeah. you know there's a lot of uh you know people always want to go to the leading centers for good reason uh, because the best treatments may not be in their hometown so a continual effort and i think the government and healthcare policymakers are really um beginning to tune into the fact that we've got to get some, uh, we've got to lift the whole behavioral health care delivery system. And that means getting many, many more providers, clinicians, you know, trained in the latest procedures. And they're coming up with ways to attempt to do this. But it's a massive problem. And uh, yeah. one that's going to take years to, to really lift up to the point that it needs to be. Fair enough. And, and I feel like, honestly, I could talk to you a whole nother half hour here about that specific piece. And obviously, yeah. we don't have the time. But to my mind, that that's why the, uni the unified protocol is so invaluable, because it's sort of, in, to some degree, it takes all these single uh, intervention, single diagnosis interventions, like exposure and response prevention, for example, for OCD. And it sort of says, you know what, there's this one intervention that we can work to learn and master, and it's going to be effective if I can use the word loosely, universally, it's going to be a very helpful intervention. If we can just master this one process, if you follow, that way we don't have to learn all of these different modalities for all of these different conditions. That's exactly our, our goal in developing this single set of principles that we hope can be more easily used by providers. Wow. Miraculous. Dr. David Barlow, uh, been a real privilege uh, for me. Thanks for coming on the podcast. My pleasure, Chris and uh, hope to see you again. Yep. What's up, guys? If you enjoyed this episode, consider giving the podcast a five-star review or supporting OCD Straight Talk to help us produce more content.